Welcome back to The Brandon White Show, where we have conversations worth listening to give you an edge to win in your business and your life. I'm your host, Brandon White. Here we go. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Build a Business Success Secrets. I'm your host, Brandon C. White, and we got a cool episode today. Not all stories when building a business quite go the way that we expect. And there's a graph that I use when I give a talk, and you've probably seen before, where there's this straight line, and that's where we all think entrepreneurship's going to happen for us or the way we're going to build our business is going to be from here to there and that's going to be it. That's going to wait, going to be the way it happens when actually it's this crazy winding room with bridges and ditches and potholes and storms, rainstorms, snowstorms, all these crazy things that you got to go through. And Ben Lyons from Lion Distilling is here to tell us a little bit about that. And you know, it's interesting. Life's interesting in how you meet people. And if you can believe this, I met Ben on the side of a road when I was fixing a flat tire riding my bike. And we became friends. And here we are today. And I, I'm i sharing with you, you get to listen to this great story of Ben. So I know you're going to enjoy it. The other thing that you're going to find interesting is, which I have not had the opportunity to interview. In fact, I don't even, a lot of my entrepreneur business owning friends don't have many rum businesses. And how do you actually build a liquor company? And that's what Ben lays out for us today. Actually, how do you build a startup liquor, in this case, rum company? And that's what you get today. Before we get started, did you know that I offer a newsletter that's also called Build a Business Success Secrets, packed with information on how to train your mind? how to take care of your body, and how to build your business. These are the three things that have helped me achieve success over the last, gosh, 22 years. Some articles from one of the recent newsletters that found its way into hundreds of fellow entrepreneurs' snail mailboxes this last month. I put together this article on everything I learned from riding on two wheels, riding my bike. And there's a ton of things that really are applicable to entrepreneurship. And I put those together for you and sort of let you in on some of those secrets that have helped me. And then on the body side of things, there's an article on the key to boosting your performance when exercising. And I dropped some HPTs, high percentage tips on how to do that. And then on the mind side, one of the things, a lot of this, a lot of success, as you know, is in your head and building the stories that we tell ourselves and taking control of those moments. And a lot of times overthinking things can actually undermine your success. And there's studies that have explored this and there's some HPTs in a article in the most recent newsletter. And then I also covered a little bit about the perks and pitfalls of celebrity endorsement, whether celebrity is a influencer that you might pay to endorse your brand and some of the things that you want to look out for and avoid so that you don't waste your money and time. Just a few of the things that are in the last newsletter. 
because you're listening, I got a special offer. Check it out at BSuccessSecrets.com. That's B as in business, SuccessSecrets.com. Check it out. See what you think. And not to keep you any longer, let's get to Ben and his rum business. We'll see you on the other side. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Build a Business with Brandon. We have Ben Lyons from Lyons Distilling. Ben, thank you so much. I know it's the holidays, you're busy, but thanks for joining today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brandon. So for all of our listeners, everybody always asks me, they say, how can I network? Right? I'm building a business. Right. I want to get to know people. I'm doing all this. Well, here's the story for everyone of how Ben and I met. And this is true. You can't even make this stuff up. I am a biker, as a lot of the listeners know, and was road biking one day, I think, actually on the way to Oxford, Maryland. Oxford, yep, between <laughs> Easton and Oxford. Yeah, that's a, a good short route. That's about an hour and 10 minute ride. And I'm riding back. I think I was with a partner. Anyway, we stop. We see this guy and there's road bikers on the Eastern Shore, but not a ton of really serious guys. And you can sort of tell them a mile away. So we see this guy on the side of the road. He's got a flat. So we pull over and we start talking and turns out Ben had just moved to Talbot County, which is on the Eastern shore of Maryland in sort of in yep. Easton, Oxford and St. Michael's. We strike up a conversation. We help. I forget we either you were set with it. I think you had the flat tire actually. Oh, was it me? All right. Well, it was that's you. Me yeah, because I was coming from Oxford. You were headed towards Oxford. You had the flat tire. Well, that's even a better story. <laughs> yeah. Because it had a tire on there. Yep. Yeah, those Schwabe tires. Exactly. So you stopped. Okay, so you uh -huh. stopped, and, and we started to struck up a conversation. And one of the things that I always do is I really believe in this, whether you're religious or not or whatever it is, I believe that the universe sort of works in this mysterious ways and that you when you meet someone, there is a reason. Sometimes that yeah. isn't obvious, but whether good or bad, things happen to you. You got figure that out. So I, Ben and I, I was like, hey, I started talking. I forget what you told me. You said you moved from Manhattan or New York or moved, something. Recently moved from Manhattan to the tiny little town of St. Michael's, Maryland. Right. So that's best described, I think, as a drinking town with a sailing problem. So <laughs> it was perfect for me. And it was only supposed to be for six months, mind you, to do exactly those two things. But <laughs> okay, so there you go. There, there's the the story. But he and right. one of the things that we didn't have, we had a little bike group in Easton, and we're always trying to recruit more people because the more people ride in the peloton, the easier it is. Absolutely. So I was like, I'm going to get Ben's number, and we exchanged it, and we became friends over the years. Turns out, Ben starts a distilling company. I'm going to let Ben take over because. I don't really know how the six months of sailing and drinking turned into the distilling. I mean, it totally, totally makes sense. But I, a, a story for everyone so they know that we can't make this up. I have a picture of my bike, which I'm going to post in the blog, in front of Ben's it. place right before he started. I think he started in 2012. Maybe he launched in 2013. You can tell the story. Yeah, but we launched in December of 2013. But yeah. Yeah. And I have my bike right in front of there. And I remember going by and it was really Ben, like, I think in a tub mixing rum. So right. <laughs> that's the story. I'm the guy with the flat, go figure. And Ben stopped and, and that's the way it works. So Ben, thanks a lot. Right. Take us through, 
the real story, you, you know, we, you, Ben and I were talking beforehand and just about what we we're going to talk about. And Ben's like, Hey, let's just, let's talk about like the real stuff that happens. And here's what happened to me. And I was like, that's exactly it. So right. you're in Manhattan doing what? This episode is sponsored by the Halle Financial Team at Expert Lending. Buying a house in today's market is competitive, and you need a lender that can close fast and get you the very best rate. The team is licensed in 48 states and has over 20 years experience in the real estate and lending space and access to lending rates that most mortgage brokers can't get. I know because I'm an investor in the team. If you need a mortgage or know someone that does, call or text Kara at 571 271 9086. And talk to a real human who will give you the customer service you deserve. Again, call or text Kara at 571-271-9086. Now back to the show. So I was a currency trader and then lobbyist. So spent a little time on, on Wall Street. And then I was a poli-sci econ guy in college. And so I you know, I sort of, I sort of look at currency trading as sort of the perfect intersection between economics and political policy. And then, of course, you know, I, I do enjoy strategy. So ultimately, you know, what's another good highlight real job? Well, you become a lobbyist. So you don't have to do any of the drudgery. You have the excitement of, of kind of the, the end goal. And really, your job is just execution. So currency trader, lobbyist, but, but we're going to step back before all that stuff, which is when I was in college. I was obviously always a, it helps to be an enthusiastic drinker if you're going to get into the booze biz, but I started brewing my own beer and I grew up in New England. So it was sort of the, the cradle of craft beer in the nineties. And I started brewing my own beer in college and it turns out it was pretty good. And right out of college ended up going to Nantucket with my best friend. I had 11 months to kill before was, uh, was starting, uh, this, this new consulting gig. And we ended up working for Cisco Brewers and Triple Eight Distilling out on the island. And the intention at that point, so this is 2005, is to get into the craft beer world and just just have that experience, see what it's all about, and drink some really good beer. But it turns out in 2005, there are only roughly 14 craft distilleries in the U.S. at this point. So you'd had a bit of the wine boom, beer is on fire, spirits just aren't there yet, but it's happening. I mean, really you were was. right in the beginning because 14, like Literally now I don't even know where like 10,000. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, well, I think these days we're, we're approaching, we're somewhere around the 3000 ish mark for, for distilleries in this country, which is an absolute massive increase. And if you look at the graph in terms of, growth of the craft beer industry and growth of the craft distilling industry, spirits are growing at a slightly faster rate. So, but back to the story, working there, intending to do the beer thing, and they've got this distillery going as well. And I'm fascinated because it all starts as a fermentation, right? But when you make whiskey, you literally start with beer and you just take it essentially one step further. And I gravitate towards the distilling side and end up doing a lot of that and fell in love with it and had one of those light bulb moments where if I could do anything, this would be it. 
But of course, growing up in an Ivy League town and going to a good school and you get these ideas about, you know, having the right job and doing the right thing and not taking some crazy risk, which would be moving to an island off the coast of New England and, and working in a, essentially a booze factory, right? So, it's, I like uh, it. So I do that for a time. But this is, in my mind, really what I want to do. So that's always there. And I'm living in New York. And I was always visiting distilleries and sort of keeping up to date on you know what was going on in the industry. We had Tuthill Town, which is in upstate New York. Kings County Distillery, one of my favorite distilleries, uh, owned by one of my good buddies, Colin Spellman in Brooklyn. Massively successful, award-winning distillery, making just unbelievably high-quality stuff. And you've got all these things popping up. And honestly, I was jealous because doing, doing the right thing, sitting at my desk, plugging away. But that was really where my passion was. So I was, I had the opportunity to go somewhere else for a time. I had geographic flexibility as a lobbyist where essentially if I had my laptop and my phone, I could be anywhere. So at the time I was in a relationship with somebody who did not want to move to New York City. And as it turns out, this will be my my eventual business partner. But we were going to take six months and I was going to leave the city for six months. And I was a former competitive sailor, really wanted to get back into sailing regularly and take a little time off the city just to just to see what's what. So that is how St. Michael's occurs. It's been St. Michael's for a month. Just at the beginning of this little six month stand. So it, it, is St. Michael's a choice because of the log canoe sailing and all this stuff or like. And proximity yeah. to Annapolis, which is regarded as okay. sort of the sailing capital of the East coast. Right. So there's a lot of good racing to do. And, and as you know, from my cycling background and sailing, I, I have a little bit of a competitive, uh, competitive yeah, instinct, <laughs> right? Just a touch. So I'm in St. Michael's for a month and my now landlord for the distillery and I sitting around one evening and he's a sailor as well, getting drunk on rum. And he says, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, actually, I, said, well, I want to have my own distillery. And he said, sort of pauses for a second and takes a sip of rum. And he says, well, you know, I have the perfect building for that. Let's go see it tomorrow. I'm thinking, really? Right? Long story short. Is, is this a drunken conversation that we have late at night or is this real? Right? That's right. what I'd be thinking. And precisely. So I said, well, all right. So we, five o'clock the next day, go over and see this property that he owns, which is zoned industrial. And there's already a winery and a brewery on the block. And it, it turns out it's as perfect as perfect can be. I had envisioned doing it back home in new England, in a you know, some old barn, but I think one of the things that you realize as an entrepreneur, or hopefully you realize as an entrepreneur that if you never start, then you don't have anything. And so at a certain point, you have to dive in. You have all these ideas about the perfect moment, the perfect time, the perfect place. Sometimes just one or two of those things has to be true and you just have to begin. And that was that moment when I said, okay, I think I'm not going to go back to New York. I'm going to do this right here, right now. going to start. It doesn't have to be perfect. We can figure all that stuff out later. And that was how it all began. 
So it begins in a night of drinking with an idea for a office, which is a good idea, I guess, if you want to brew, but no brewing equipment, no financing, no business plan at this point. I mean, the business plan sort of in your head, I imagine. Right. Because you're... Your general outline of what I wanted to do. Right. And I had sort of been working preliminarily in some seriousness on a plan for a couple of years. Uh, I had some. So you had some, been working on a real plan. I had been working on an actual plan. It was going to be in Brooklyn, New York, with a couple of big investors, people I was working with up there. But it wasn't exactly tugging at my heartstrings. It was and just you were doing do. it just, market research every night at these bars in Manhattan, understanding right, the the different types of rum and needing to sample many of those every night. Precisely. Okay. And then ultimately, if we always did the things we said we'd do when we were drunk, the world would be a much more interesting place. Wouldn't it? <laughs> there you go. That, if any of the listeners get anything, take anything away, this is like a right. George Costanza thing, isn't it? Just do the opposite or do what you do when you say when you're drunk, because that's really what you want to do. Precisely. And I think it's also ultimately for the entrepreneurs in the audience about really diving in on your passions because you can always play life by the numbers, right? You can always decide what you can look at the projections, look at your spreadsheets and play it by the numbers. But what do you actually have heart and soul in? And it could be as, as, Hey, well, I love cocktail hour or it can be something different or I like riding my bike or maybe it's all those things. Or in my case, I like riding my bike, I like sailing and I like drinking. And sometimes all those things intersect perfectly. So, uh, But I think there's also something to be said there around not just the passion, Ben, but when you build a business, and you and I were talking about this beforehand, ultimately, if we look at all the successful companies out there, it ultimately is the founder who exemplifies what that company is, right? I mean... Right. We can go all the way back to Yvonne Chouinard doing Patagonia and a pair of shorts and climbing. I mean, right? Absolutely. Even tech companies, you can do Oracle and you can do Facebook. I mean, all these companies effectively, Microsoft, right? I mean, Microsoft, everybody equates with Bill Gates and Bill Gates put his self into there. So I would say that not only is it about the passion, but it's about actually being that person, right? Like you, I, I Absolutely, wholeheartedly agree. Or um, if you're not that person, find a partner who is that person because it's going to be a character, so to speak, that you build this cult following around. Right. And, and ultimately, I'll, I'll say that you know, the long days, the all-nighters, all that stuff is a lot easier if you actually do have a little heart and soul in it. And, and maybe, that, maybe the, that and the tough times will, will keep you going. Yeah, maybe the word, Ben, because I, I look at you and we were talking and I think about you. And and building a distillery, it's authenticity, right? Oh, like through like those through. Pic- those pictures of you on Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff, hanging off of boats and sailing wherever God knows you sail and doing all that. Right. Like that, th- th- those aren't fashion shots; those are real. No, it's it's real life, right? And yeah. and I think that is for a real brand. Right. And, and there, we could, we could talk for hours about how you build a brand and how you create authenticity. But, but that's the thing about authenticity is sometimes you find it in unexpected ways or 
or it's, it's right in front of your face and you didn't actually have to look anywhere else. And for me, it was about doing something that I, that I loved and believed in. And, and ultimately, I mean, when it comes down to the business plan, it was just a bootstrapped operation between me and my business partner. And well, can we stop there? Cause everybody, sure. so we, we, we skip over that. And one of the questions that I get all the time, cause I say the same thing, Oh, I bootstrapped it. But how did you bootstrap it? Did you, you, did you save up from all that work in the cubicle that you were doing? Did you do some consulting on the side? I mean, sales didn't come in. I know that. Cause I remember your, right. your thing blew up or it didn't work right or whatever you guys brew in. You can talk about that. It seemed to remember it didn't all go as, plan so did you have savings and you just what did you do yes and one of the so i mean literally we, we had some both of us had some money that we had saved talked talked away and decided to roll it into this thing and it was and again this was where maybe as a where the passion, where, where maybe too much emphasis was on it being a passion project. Like, I mean, cause hindsight is always 2020. Right? And it really was the only calculation in terms of will this work is how much does it cost to keep the lights on every month? Your burn rate. Yeah. What's our burn rate? And the burn rate was really, really low. And I think for me, especially coming from Manhattan overhead, scares me so much. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs waste an untold sums of money on overhead that they don't actually need to. I want to, I want to stop you on that. Cause, cause sure. I just talked to someone the other day and I live this first thing entrepreneurs do. One of the first things a lot of entrepreneurs do is they run out and effing buy an or rent an office. Yes. Can you just don't need an office? No offices. I didn't pay Ben to say this, but like, why? That doesn't make us professional. No, a laptop and a phone, any place, anytime. You have your office. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Overhead (laughs) is the thing that will absolutely bleed you dry, even if you're doing all the right things. And for me, and, and this is sort of one of the unique twists of the story, we had a very friendly landlord who cut us a break in the beginning because they wanted it to succeed. Because one of the scary things in the distilling industry is before you actually get your federal and state licensing, you have to have a physical location. Mm. So in a sense, there is, there is an overhead component that's required. And you just need to be smart about it. Because a lot of them aren't. And how long does that process or do, about? I mean, you are in Mar- you're in Maryland. I don't know. I mean, there's the a state, process. The state of Maryland is absolutely fantastic. The comptroller's office in the state of Maryland, uh, Peter Francho, phenomenal guy. You send them an email. I'm not kidding. Within five minutes, wow. somebody always writes you back. That's well, that not happens. an exaggeration. If every state agency worked the way the comptroller's office in Maryland does, it would be incredible. I mean, they really are a remarkable bunch. The federal license, on the other hand, at the time, took eight months. So you're paying if you don't have a deal, and you're going and and, and there's a few students that have had who who have distilleries or want to go into distilling. If you don't right. have some sort of deal, like you can't go out unless you 
I just don't even know how the numbers work, Ben, if you are paying- Because you don't, you don't, you literally don't know. It could be a month. Some people get their, get their federal licenses in a month. There've been a couple that have happened in two weeks that I know of. For some, it takes a year. And you have to be prepared for that. And, and for us, I'm not going to lie, it did get scary towards the end of that licensing process because when can we start generating revenue? And also, until you have that license, you're not allowed to start making product. And of course, I, I never did any of that. <laughs> there was no, oh, of there, course not. There were no, te- no test patches. <laughs> but so did you? Did you do you and your business partner just like cheap rent, not eating out right. all the time, not taking trips to Cancun? Right. I mean, is that basically it? Now, did you do any consulting or anything to sort of offset this? Yes. Oh, you did. Okay. And at the time, I was still I was still working and still had income from what I was doing. But that, and again, this is where the side hustle starts to potentially impact your actual venture or, or your real job impacts your real venture, which is that you can't put 100% into it. And the space that we took over, and this gets into the low overhead thing. I mean, I, as a quote unquote, you know, master distiller, you're also often the electrician, the plumber in chief, you know, the, yeah, <laughs> the I remember you doing director. everything. I mean, I, I got really good at pouring concrete and doing wiring. And I think these are good life skills for anybody, but there are also people who go out and just hire the contractors to do it. And that's a totally legitimate and very expensive way to do it. But I had a little bit of time. So in a lot of ways, it was sort of a perfect intersection of all these things. But I did eventually have to stop doing the work that I was doing with my clients in New York because it just, they're just it just wasn't working with what I so was So is that doing. just something you felt like one day you're like, okay. I mean, because this is the it, thing that people always ask me. And, and, and I, when I do it, I just, I don't know, maybe from doing it for 21 years and being an entrepreneur and do every company I've ever started is a side hustle. Cause right everything you've said, which is low overhead. So for me, I mean, I am mathematical and I basically say, Hey, when the business can sustain my monthly burn, this isn't vacations to Cancun, or this is my burn rate. Then that's a point where I could start to think about ditching this other stuff until then. I am not a big fan of, of ditching that unless you are so confident that revenue is going to come within 30 or 60 days. But I've just never like I've never seen an entrepreneur that can nail the numbers in the beginning. Well, and and I think what you just said right there is also incredibly important, which is that as entrepreneurs, we can come up with whatever projections we want that help us sleep at night. But ultimately, a lot of it's total bullshit. Right. It really is. And whether you're a brewer, a distiller, you're making whatever widget or piece of software you have no idea who's going to buy it or how many are going to and what what your what the revenue is going to look like so you you have to believe and you at least just have to get off the ground and for me it was as simple as i think in the beginning without 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 paying ourselves i think needed to sell something in the neighborhood of we'll call it 3 or 4000 dollars worth of rum a month you, were, you, you needed to sell because effectively the ROM, once right. the sunk cost is there, it's like media. It's pure profit, right? It's, I mean, it is a capital intensive industry. But, but once you but, get but, past but, that. But, but, but it was, well, if we can do three or four grand a month, 
anything beyond that is great. I was like, well, yeah, I could totally do that. Of course. And of course, in the beginning, and, and it turned out that that worked, worked really well. And we were making money. And so, and then the ball starts rolling and call it luck, whatever you will. Anyway, I feel very fortunate that we were successful in the beginning because a lot of people aren't. But, but, but let's talk about was, that because I, I just, I'm going to interrupt you. I know, train sure. talk, but you go from Manhattan, you're going to Nantucket, you're coming back, you take six months off, you decide you're going to do a distillery in a night of drinking and, <laughs> and, literally. and literally, and you decide to do it and you go off and do it. You're now selling two, three, four thousand dollars a month. You have some success. Do you think that success, like, could you create a system um, and tell people, was it because you were living in town and it was a small town, mm-hmm. you were a sailor, you're a good sailor. Right. So you show up in town every, I mean, you're a good sailor in, in those towns. Everybody's going to recognize that. And right. they, you were able to leverage that authenticity of sailing and bring them into the distillery to buy the rum. I mean, is Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Okay. So what do sailors like to drink? Well, sailors drink a lot of rum. <laughs> But that's how you did it. I mean, some entrepreneurs, you know, I try to explain like if you're, if you have a hair salon, you've got to be like a really good hair salon person. Right. Right. right? And and that's how you're going to bring people in or however that is. So that's really how you got your first sales. You didn't run ads on Facebook or anything like that. No, I mean, really did, did zero advertising. And because of my background in lobbying and, and PR and political consulting, I knew how to leverage a good PR game. And another thing for entrepreneurs out there, it is amazing to me the number of people with new businesses who don't bother to make sure they're just on Google Maps. It is mind-boggling to me. It is free. It is right there. It lets people find you. It The number of businesses who don't bother blows my mind. And that is one of those simple little things where just make it so people can find you. That's a, that's a huge tool right there. And it's free. That's good. And it's doing those little things, but also strategic press releases and taking advantage of the media cycle. I mean, we've got a very hungry media who want to know what's going on. And sometimes you just have to spoon feed it to them a little bit, but especially if you're doing something interesting and this all goes back to make it so they can find you. And Seth Godin describes the people who are your enthusiasts as your tribe. Well, make it so that your tribe know that you're out there. Let make it so that you can be found, make it so that people can discover your product because it's not enough to just sit in the factory and crank this stuff out. You got to put it out in the world. And sometimes it requires a little creativity and some people are better at it than others. But if you don't know how to do it, there are lots of tools out there. People like Brandon can teach you how to do it. (laughs) But, but it really is that it's making some people can find you. Okay. So that's great advice. It's free. It does shock me how many people just, Oh, I don't know how to do it. Well, just, it's not that hard, but we don't want to go into that. So get yourself on, especially if you're a location based business. You, Absolutely. You want to be on there. Now, going back to your story, you bootstrapped this thing. You're not paying yourself. You went through just previous to this some scary times when you're not sure you're going to get there, but you get there. You get three yeah. or $4,000 in sales, which isn't a ton, 
but it starts to cover your burn. Well, right? we, we rocked it. Our, I mean, I will say we rocked it our first month and it was, and we, we went well past our goal, but that was, that was all we had to do. And it was like, wait a second, this is, this is a real business. It was kind of, it was kind of this holy shit moment of it works. <laughs> you, know, now, what, you, you put all the pieces what, what, in place. It's like, huh. Was this B2C business or B2B? Were you getting your rum into other local places or were you also bringing consumers into the distillery? At this point, it was only foot traffic to the distillery. Wow. Wow. And we, we said, because it's so small, won't do any distribution for the first year. Oh. Well, after three months, that changed because the demand was absolutely massive. And that's when I really started pulling a lot of all-nighters. <laughs> so... So you get some revenue. You're all, only selling to the consumer. This is foot traffic. Just for everybody, this is foot traffic in St. Michael's, Maryland. That does have a lot of tourists in the it summer. Does. Right. In the winter, it's pretty much locals with a few people who go and hang out in that area. And then, so three months, you decide that you're going to go B two B. And is that that was driven by you just listening to the market, Ben? Absolutely. The, they, the demand was there. I give a lot of credit to Spike up at Woodbury Kitchen in Baltimore. Uh, I was doing great stuff, has, has done great stuff up there for over a decade now. And, and of course now has the Lion Hotel with the with the Nomad guys in, in DC and is doing incredible things with Rake's Progress. But he was the early driver of, of us getting into, Woodbury Kitchen was our very first wholesale account. Mm. But sort of thought, well, if Spike wants it, he wasn't the only one, but he was the one who said, we want it here now. And we thought, well, love Woodbury Kitchen. Love all the things that he does with sustainability, supporting local producers. It was all that stuff. And it was a meaningful place to have as the first account. And then from there, it just absolutely blew up. Now, you are making this stuff yourself. Right. Hands on. Making, bottling everything yourself not hiring a ton of employees not no employees <laughs> no employees just you yeah been there it was, uh, it was it was me and jamie and then i think we hired her sister part-time to help us do bottling and stuff got you and jamie is your is your business partner in line to yep. still. so you guys are doing all this and how long do you both with this part-time sister go until you decide like hey this is you know, we're going to break because there's only so many late nights. Well, the first year I was pulling at least a few all nighters every week. Wow. Or I was sort of running the stills, going in, making a, there's a lot of machination in there, but essentially go home, sleep for a few hours, go back, do it some more. And that was very much the people say, Oh, I pulled, pulled all these all nighters. I really was on a schedule of pretty brutal all nighters, but, wow. but, it, but, but that's what it took. And we can also talk a little bit about scale. Yeah. And this was one of the hindsight being what it is. If I could change one thing, building in more scale initially and making it easier to scale. Once we started to grow. And do you uh, mean by that actually building systems? Bigger equipment. Oh, bigger equipment. Because right. Because ultimately in the distilling world, 
if you've got more of, so we have our, our stills and our fermentation tanks, right? Those are the two sort of main pieces of equipment in the, in, in the operation. And if you have a bigger still, you're making more product in the exact same amount of time. And that's the idea. So early on, I only had two little baby stills. And everybody said, you're insane. That won't work. You need at least half a million dollars to start a distillery. And I said, bullshit, watch me go. And sure enough, I was able to make it work. But it was only because of the crazy hours that I was working. Yeah, but that's really what it takes, right, Ben? Because you go out, you spend half a million dollars, you either take it from the bank, you get an investor, whatever it is, and you don't hit your targets on time or whatever. Now you're behind the eight ball. They can take over your company. You're, I, I mean, I just, I just don't know. And, you know, in the tech business, we, we do do that, right? We'll throw a bunch of money at it really fast and, and try Absolutely. to make it happen. But for most businesses in America, that is just right. not the case. Like you're going to have to start small. You're going to have right, to start right. with either one, one, just what do you call it? Distill, 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 yeah. add another one, work your rear off until you get enough business right. that you can buy and finance that bigger one. Right. I mean, sure. And that's absolutely, I mean, that is the trajectory, right. Of, of growing a business. But I think the bottom line is you, you, you do yourself a lot of favors when you're hyper efficient and because of the dollars, we were forced to be hyper efficient. And I think I learned so much by doing that. And I think in a lot of ways you do, you learn more when you work more, obviously the more times you do a thing repetition, right? It's the 10,000 hour rule. And you learn more, you become better at what you're doing, but you do when it's not just as simple as picking up the phone and saying, Hey, you know, I need this done. And so and so you hire somebody to do it and you actually do it yourself. You're just a more capable person, more capable entrepreneur. And I think you're more in touch with what's going on in your business. And I think it's, it's, it's being in touch in that way and really having a sense of all the pieces. It's not that you need to have your hands directly on all of them because it's a really quick way to, to burn yourself out and or fail, but at least having some sense of what's going on. Yeah. I meet a lot of people who say, well, I don't think I can do that. I'm going to hire that. And look, I'm, I don't know how many of these things I've done, but I had to exit right. far and I am, and I'm working on this new software company and I am still doing Photoshop. I spent the weekend yeah. figuring out how to use send grid in a better way for my email right. list than I have. And, you know, entrepreneurs come to me and they're like, sure. Oh, I can't learn that. Well, no, no, you've got to learn that. If you've got to do wiring, you can right. learn wiring. My wife fixes the washer and dryer with circuit boards, watching yeah. videos and ordering the parts. Like you just can't tell me. You Everything's can't. on YouTube. Everything. Yeah. I, I want to know how to do Sometimes I'm not really yeah. sure if it's all right, but if you dig <laughs> if you dig hard enough, you will find, and the manufacturers have some videos. You will find right. a, a way to do it. So you're working long hours. You're now you went from B to C. You've got a B to B, a B to C business to consumer business. You've got a B to B because you were lucky enough to find someone who wanted your product demand. and started to promote it. Right? They they really right. became the promotion uh, for you. 
and maybe this is a time we were talking before we got on. And sometimes your day doesn't go as planned, right? Like, right. So, so how, like, what has that been like for you? I mean, not that in a normal business job, your day might not go in plan, but as an entrepreneur, I think that's a different, <laughs> there's a different definition of day not going as planned. Right. And I think, well, whether it's a, a market not working out the way that you thought it would, or maybe it's things that we experienced. I mean, legislation not going your way, or it's conflict with a business partner or something like that. As an entrepreneur, I think it's crucial. And, and again, this is all stuff that I've had to learn and, or, or get better at or, or cope with. And what do you do when things in your business aren't going the way that you thought they would when you're, when your perfect little plan either goes out the window or it just changes in a way that forces you to reconsider your trajectory, both in the business and in, in maybe in your career or, or the industry. And what's that pivot point? And I think it's key to remember that as entrepreneurs, it's important to have sort of a broad scope in terms of how you view your, your industry or business or, or the ideas that you have, right? So that you, you're not just pinpoint focused. You have some perspective, but then what is it you want to do next? And I think this is also where if you consider yourself an entrepreneur, this is where we, where we have to remember that as entrepreneurs, we have to put the pieces in place so that when we go away or if we're forced to go away or things change in, in ways that we can't control, the show goes on, right? And for a lot of our viewers, for, for you know, people out there who are, know my company, you see that I'm not around these days as much. And that's the result of some things changing. But for me personally, that's meant that projects that I have in the works or, and things that I wanted to execute on suddenly become possible because you're not grinding it out day in and day out on the previous project. You're able to move on to the next one. Right. And that's something that in the last year and a half, I've actually been able to start doing and taking some of the, because we, you know, we listen to whether it's podcasts like yours or Seth Godin's another guy that I've listened to a lot in the past or we read, you know, Inc. Magazine or whatever it is, we don't actually think about in seriousness, what next, right? We don't, we don't do that as much. And it's, and it's hard to do when you're wrapped it up in the day to day. And thankfully when things started to change in my business, I had already had some things in the works and it opened the door to do that stuff. And I think that's an important lesson and a few things. One is if you go into business with a business partner, whether that's your girlfriend, boyfriend, significant other, right. old friend, whatever that is, and I, I talk from experience, you it is really important, and I tell people this, and it's very uncomfortable. Let's just be Absolutely. completely blunt. One of the first things when people come to me and they say, Oh, me and my partner are doing this. And I'm like, okay, well, the first two questions that I ask that even though I keep blogging about it and telling it, they still don't have the answer. I guess maybe they don't listen to me 
or no, I'm out there. I don't know which one it is. Right, but right, right. I say, what is your burn rate? Your yeah. personal burn rate. Not, and you should know that down to the penny yeah. if you're going to be an entrepreneur. And two is, what is your agreement with your partner? Right. And they're like, oh, what do you mean? Well, we're sort of doing it together. No, no, you right. have to have that discussion and you have to go over that agreement in detail and understand the implications of right. what it means. And paperwork and legal work is really, I mean, there's two reasons. One is it goes really well and you've got to divide the money up some point, right? right? And it spells out. And then when things don't go so well, you can go back and lean on that operating agreement, whether you're a C Corp, S Corp, LLC, whatever you are, sure. partnership to basically be able to do that. So I think it's really important to do that because in all partnerships, disagreements will happen. People will grow apart. I started a company with my wife and I made sure, you know, people are like, well, it looks like you're preparing for divorce. I was like, I'm not preparing for divorce at all. What I'm preparing for is a disagreement that could lead to divorce that isn't even related to the business. And each of us needs to understand what that is. So I'm saying this because it sounds like things, you know, don't always go well with your partnership. And then when you get other... Absolutely. So that's the first thing I want to say around that is, is that if you haven't had a uh, discussion with your partner, you need to sit down and do it and know that it will be uncomfortable. We as humans right. don't want to... Because there's that, well, Ben, we're going into business together and you, you're you already planning for us to not work? Right. Well, that'd be like saying, well, let's just not incorporate. Let's not get a bank account. Let's put the money in a box. Like... That's right. not how this stuff works. So we're not we're not doing that. Nobody's preparing. We're we're just documenting it so everybody knows where you stand. And then the second thing is, is and I and this is true of entrepreneurs who things don't go right necessarily in their business and and they decide to leave or it forced to happen and or even Ben, and I think you'll agree and I know you know a lot of people up in New York and I'm sure right. you can relate that you sell your business, you've got right. this windfall of money. You haven't thought one iota about what you're doing, right. and now everybody and you're and you're and you're sad, and everyone's right. like, "Oh, I really feel sorry for you. You made all this money now," but but truthfully, it's not always about the money. It's there's a personal component to this. This is why I really always talk about business isn't just business; it's mind body business. Like if you haven't thought right. about who you are, and it's easy to get lost in who you are and building these businesses, but if you don't at least spend some time thinking, okay, I love what I'm doing. And some people feel like, oh, well, if I think about that, I'm, I'm taking away from... No, you're, you're having some sanity because luckily for you, it sounds like, Ben, you thought a little bit about this, but there's a lot... I have a lot of friends who made a lot of money who are right. pretty unhappy because they're like, well, what do I do now? That's an interesting thing. And I, and I, and I think this is... I'll make this a little personal and then we'll get away from it. But I think... The reason, and I will tell everybody out there, from my perspective, when you when you write an operating agreement, right? You're, as Brandon just said, you're preparing for the worst. Which at the beginning, when it's all sunshine and and bunnies and you know <laughs> puffy white clouds, you almost can't think about the worst, right? And so I, and on that note, for me, as in starting this business, it wasn't about the money really at all, or I would have been much more cutthroat and bloodthirsty when it came to 
writing our operating agreement, which was ultimately preparing for the worst. And tactically, in retrospect, is that an error? Yes. But because it's not all about the money, am I unhappy? Am I without direction as I move forward? No. And having those projects that move you, having those passions in life, that's what keeps you going. And I think that's what keeps you going both in business and life. And I'm amazed that it's actually my favorite question to ask anybody. What do you like to do? If you're by yourself, nobody knows what you're up to. What are, what's the thing or the things that in life make you sublimely happy? You know, for you and I, it's getting out on the bike or I could go sailing or, I, you know, how I can make myself a good cocktail or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all those little things, right? But it's what actually in a real true way fulfills you. And that can be a hard question for a lot of people because you get wrapped up in your day-to-day life and you're doing all the quote unquote right things, but are you actually fulfilled? And, and like you said, I mean, you've got a lot of friends who've made a lot of money and have been very successful, but what next? Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I'll raise my hand and not just say, you know, friends, I mean, I've had it happen to me, like yeah. finish a business, think I got my stuff together Right. And and basically you're you're like, oh my God. <laughs> like who I who am I? What am I doing? Like I'm right. not that good anymore or whatever. And a lot of it is I think as an entrepreneur, I mean, you've got to like a little bit. There's some sort of you like the attention, right? I mean, you, you sure. feed off of the attention. You you like your customers. I love the customers. I want to talk to customers yeah. all the time. I mean, and then all of a sudden you don't have these customers. You get like two right. emails a day. One of them's from your mom, <laughs> right? <laughs> checking checking yeah. on you, and the other one's a bill. And you're like, "Well, who am I?" And I think those are, you know, right. and it's a hard question. Make no mistake. I, I think you and I yeah, be, being in the game is exciting, right? It's it help pro athletes go through that too. It's yeah, yeah like all of a sudden you're it. when you're when you're not when you're not in the game anymore. Well, what, what now? <laughs> right? right? It's exciting. It's fun. It's fulfilling. It's as much as agonizing because it can be. It's also in a way fulfilling. So when did, us, when did you think about that, Ben? Like, I mean, you weren't obviously preparing for the worst. You, nobody knows that things are going to go right. so bad. But I mean, you sail, you bike. Those are times when your mind is just at ease. So right. when things didn't go perfect, right? And you're not as involved in the business anymore. You already right. sort of had a, your bookshelf, it sounds like, ready to pick off yes. what's next. And I think, thankfully, being well-regarded in the industry, I had people who wanted to call on my expertise. I had opportunities that I hadn't executed on. And I had projects that need, that, that demanding attention. And I was able to go and, and literally immediately, and this is whether it's luck or what have you, I, I feel lucky to have had those opportunities, but it also made the transition easy. And I think a lot of people in your industries, when you, one, one of the things also, and I, I think this is one of those little, little lessons too, is on the one hand, you want to be close to the chest, right? With whether it's your strategy, you know, the secret sauce, whatever it is. But I think also you want to be giving of your time and your expertise, right? Especially to new guys in the business. I had some great mentors 
coming up and it, and it happened sort of naturally. And I had some, some great friends in the industry who were always very helpful in the beginning when I, when I really needed, whether it was, you know, how do I, I don't have the right heat seals for the top of my bottles. Can I steal some of yours or little pieces like that who were, who were really helpful. And I made an effort when we sort of established ourselves and, and when I had sort of developed a good reputation to make sure that didn't forget that to be helpful, to be giving of time, to be not sort of looking at everybody as terrible competition. They're just sort of one of these boats, you know, on the rising tide. And I think if you have that mindset, it's healthy, it's good for your industry, it's good for your community. And ultimately later, when you want to do something different or there's a change, you'll say, hey, you know, that that guy knows what he's doing and we've got something that could use some attention over here. And maybe this is, maybe that's a jumping off point or it's an opportunity. Yeah. So let's just catch the listeners up because they're probably sailing around with a little rudder, not the rudder not working right. as well as it should. Basically what's happened is Ben has, is still an owner of Lions Distillery. It's still going, still sells rum, makes good rum. He is an owner, but you're not as active on the daily basis. And that's, I'm not, I'm no longer the master distiller. No longer and, the master distiller. Yeah. So that's, and that's been about a year and a half now, but yeah, which so, is a, which is a transition, but, but you're also, still, still, you still own it. You're still, right. still going on. Ben, my name's still on the wall. That's <laughs> right, ben <laughs> I don't know how we changed that, but now you're looking on, on some new ventures and it, you know, looking back on your whole experience, because from the from you stopping, I mean, I really was lucky enough to get into your story from my flat tire today, right? Um, and even, very beginning. <laughs> and, and, and you and I, you know, I've stayed in touch just since I moved out of Maryland, right? On social media and whatnot, and I don't know where you and I exchanged probably social media. The most most of it's how I follow you, but the. Yeah. You know, looking back, Ben, what would be three tips that you would give entrepreneurs who are want to do something, whether it's their passion or they're good at? I always say, I think people should follow their passion, but not always if the passion is really a hobby. Because following your passion, you got to make sure that there's a business. The mortgage comes on the 30th, at least for me every month. And, you know, you got to pay it. So if a passion becomes a hobby too long, then I think people get caught up in it and aren't able sure. to put put it aside. So you actually were able to take this passion and turn it into something that made money at some point. But what would be three tips looking back on this? I don't know, it's been six years? Yeah, this, we just had our six-year anniversary. Right, so. six years. What would you, you know, as a... <laughs> and, then, and, then we'll, and then we'll talk it's, about... It's, it's, totally, it's totally wild to me, but... And we'll talk um, about where you're going, but let's talk about three, I call them high percentage tips that you would give entrepreneurs. Right. I think the first thing is whatever the idea is. I think in distilling, it's fairly easy, right? Because there's a tangible end product. Things you know, like tech or software, et cetera, can be a little bit less it's a little bit less formative, at least in the in in the beginning stages, right? Because so many things can change. At least in distilling, you've got this very it's very tangible end product, which is rum in the bottle. And I think having a good, clear direction of where you're going is absolutely key. And 
on that note, sort of, you know, one, like I said, getting to that tangible end product, keep your overhead low. Don't go get an office. Don't do any of that nonsense. Outsource or, or delay as many of those little things as you need. You know, you don't need to go buy a fancy copier. You don't need to have this great, you certainly don't need a receptionist. I think things like TaskRabbit, you know, the online concierge services, all that stuff can be leveraged to your advantage. I mean, and beyond that, which is sort of the nuts and bolts financial stuff at the beginning, which is just, just be hyper efficient. Just be, be as efficient as you can run it from your couch. And I've got a few friends who do that and it works. And, and then they get to the point where they say, well, I already need to make the next step. And then that next step is so much easier if you're not locked into some lease somewhere in some building that you hate and doesn't sue you anymore. Next piece is just, just the idea and the passion and really believing in what you do. I had a, a maddening discussion with a friend the other day. I yeah, just, it was really cool. My brother set out to you know, just make a million dollars. And I said, well, and she's like, you know, I just think it's really cool that you know, he, he did that. I said, well, to what end? Right. And so, all right, you have the million dollars and literally then what? Right. And where's the soul in that? And where's the passion? And it, it, I think gosh, online, there's all these people who say, oh yeah, you know, listen to my spiel and you'll become, you know, a million. It's like, no, 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 no. Forget all that. Forget all that nonsense. Being a passionate person who has interests, who is out there engaged in the world, and not just saying, well, you know, I want to make this much money and do this thing at such and such a time. You've got to be flexible. And if you believe in what you do, so many other things will take care of itself. I mean, really, it's it's but it's but it's really fundamentally believing what you do and and being authentic about it. Because if you're not authentic in this day and age, with all the advertising that we get pegged at us all day long. People are really wise to it and have incredible radar for bullshit. So just just don't be a bullshitter. And after that, whether it's uh, and, and you know this is sort of general strategy, but but having a vision about where you're going, which ties in a lot of things, whether it's writing your operating agreement, building in scale, all of those things, where you ultimately want to go, and how big do you want to be. And also, I think as a, an entrepreneur or somebody starting a business, do you want to do this job for the rest of your life, which if you do is, is fantastic and, and that's a beautiful thing in and of itself? Or do you, is this something that you're very interested in and you want to grow it, but then ultimately you want to move on to the next thing? And that's a, that's a very important thing to think about in terms of how you, you ultimately structure that business. And that's, and that's a fundamental piece that doesn't get enough attention, which is, and I, and I think you really can break it down is, is this the job you want to do for the rest of your life? Or do you want to build this thing and then, and then go forward and do, and do the next thing. And mm-hmm. I think those are, that's kind of how I would, how I would break it all down. And of course we talk for hours about each of those things, but. Oh, of course. Yeah. But I think that's that. great advice. So I want to switch topics just real quick and talk about the industry because Sure. You know, now that you were there, there's 14 distilleries in the United States. When you first start, you're up in Manhattan right. and, and you're doing this and you're working on Nantucket. There's 14. Now there's 3,000, you said, in the United States. It's a craze. I mean, I hate to say craze, but it's a craze. Everybody wants to do it. I don't know how big the market is in, in general. I mean, a lot of people drink. I don't right. know if we're outlawing drinking. 
there's definitely all these niches. There's definitely exits. The big liquor companies can't produce the types of authenticity that a Lions distillery can because they can't be Ben Lyon, right. right? So can you talk a little bit about the, in general, the economics? Because I asked you earlier, and I know that it's capital intensive. So you went on a smaller route. Maybe you invest $100,000 or maybe you invest fifty. And then can you talk about the actual economics? When, once you've got that capital infrastructure, it's essentially a, a sunk cost. Then there's, there's on that financial sheet, there's the cost of the actual product. There's the right. and there's the bottle and that little piece of paper that goes around it that says lines of stealing that probably right. cost off three cents. It's got to be a profitable thing once you get there. Can you talk about those, the, the economics? For sure. I think on the small scale, it is pretty easy, relatively speaking, to it's a lot easier in this business to start out really, really small and, and establish a niche in your local community or local market than it is to create something huge and then and then say, we've got enough production built in here that we have to sell nationwide. Otherwise, we're done. And I don't. I mean, it's like I don't, I don't have the perfect solution for that. But what I will say is that it is, it is obviously a very capital intensive business, and there are a lot of different ways to do it. You can become a craft distiller, which is your hands on, literally making the thing from the raw ingredients, fermentation, distillation, bottling, doing it all in house, and and that's a, a method that I absolutely respect and appreciate, and have been there and done that, and that's how I created my reputation, which is doing it the you know, the good old fashioned hard way. You can also create a brand. You can source spirits from any number of big producers and put your own spin on it, put your own label on it, what have you. There's a, a brand that I worked with up in Vermont who is doing just that thing. And they, they unfortunately didn't do a good job of it or closing their doors at the end of this month. And it's an unfortunate reality, which is in every market segment, you have sort of the unicorns, right? The ones who just, it was just like this magical success story. And you can't just flat out emulate them. So there are lessons to be learned or things to be drawn from their experiences, but you can't just set out to be them. And that's what this business is like, where it, it really requires some kind of hook, some kind of unique aspect to your story and also it has to be good and i think that's one of the things that excites me so much now as com compared to six years ago when we started the spirits are just better right and, and competition not only is it can be scary right but it does force it does force everybody to be better and ultimately in this business one of the things that you oddly realize as a just on the creative side as a master distiller, you want to put your touch on everything. You want to have your vision of what the thing is supposed to be. You know, there has to, you want some sort of context there that you inserted into the product. But the reality is we're here for everyone else. If nobody buys your stuff, is it relevant? Is what you're doing important? It's not that it's not cool, but we are also running a business here. So really, it, it, in a sense, it's important that you have input, but the only thing that matters is what people want. Yes, Can sir. you make them, do they want it? If they don't want it, how do you make them want it? 
And that's also part of the secret sauce, but that's, but that's hugely important. It's a, it's a very competitive industry. And because of the regulations in alcohol, it can be an arcane thing to navigate around with regard to excise tax and different regulations state to state and wholesale distribution and all that good stuff. So it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. So let's say, let me, I want to do an example. And I don't know if that answered your question or not. And that's why I'm going to come back to you, but I think that was really good. <laughs> and I think people need to hear that and understand that. But let's take a $40 bottle of rum. Is that expensive for sure. a bottle of rum or is that a middle price? That is sort of edging towards the higher end. Oh, okay. A- let's just, let's just do that because it's the holiday and we're in good spirits and we're going to be out sure. there, right? We sell a bottle of rum for 40 bucks. We've got taxes that I don't know what alcohol taxes that 15% on in general. In the state in of general. Sales, sales tax or excise tax? Well, the whole thing. Just give me like the whole, my whole tax. Uh, for a bottle of rum, you're looking at about close to a buck in taxes. A buck out of the 40? Yes. Okay. So we got 40 bucks. We got a dollar in taxes. And we've got how much is a bottle cost? Like you have a customer. So your average bottle is going to be a buck, a dollar fifty to two fifty. Okay, just so for the glass. Yeah, just for the glass, we've got two fifty. Corks another five or ten cents. Little sleeve is like a penny. Your label could be a dollar or it could be five dollars. So labeling is is a huge variable. Okay, um, yeah, figure on a cup. Figure a couple bucks on the label. And do you? I don't know. I don't, I haven't, I don't drink. So in general, yeah. not because I'm like anything other than I just, I don't have time to recover anymore. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so we all of, struggle with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it got harder after I got older. I was like, I think I'm right. gonna do that. But uh, do you, some people put their packaging in a box. Does Lions put their stuff in a box? So then you've got a box. So when you ship it out to wholesalers, you got to put it in a box. That also costs, eh, it could be anywhere from a dollar to two dollars. So let's just call it unit. 40 bucks, ten dollars in taxes. And I'm just going to wrap some marketing and you got some shipping and whatever in there, right? And if you're wholesaling that, do liquor stores, I'm not, I'm not as familiar with liquor, do they want to keystone that? Meaning they want to do a, a markup? If yes. You so, you, so you have to discount from your MSRP or your, your suggested retail price. So if you... And that can be anywhere from 25... On average, it's a 30 to 40% discount from, from retail price. So $40 bottle, $10, you sell it to them for 20. You're really only making 10 bucks a bottle. I'm just trying to, for the, our listeners, get down to, Absolutely. hey, I'm going to build a distillery, Ben. I'm Absolutely. calling you tomorrow and... We're going to do this. Understand that you got to. One thing that I tell people, and Ben, you know this from coming from Manhattan and being a trader and everything, is if you don't run that spreadsheet, yeah, you are in big trouble. I'm not yeah. saying you know you said some really good things, which is the projections are going to be total BS. You're probably not going to hit them, but it is important to run them so that right. you do understand what that is. Because I've gotten in a few places where. We meet with someone and I said, okay, let's go through the cost just like we did. And we do it on the back of a napkin. And all of a sudden, the cost exceeds the price. I'm like, wait, you like, let's just stop. Let's just stop. Like, we've got so many problems here. So, the distillery business, though, on volume sounds like it can be very profitable once you've made it. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, we, we have done a few projects where it doesn't make financial sense. 
it was literally just a sort of a call it a marquee product, whatever you want to to show how creative we were and to show capability. And it was, it was things that were just, I mean, whether you want to call them artistic exercises, whatever it might be, but that don't and didn't really make financial sense. Well, I think that's important because for entrepreneurs, like you had said earlier, you see this stuff on the internet, right? Like build this funnel, Ben, and you can make $1.5 million in the next 45 days. Exactly. (laughs) Well, well, and my thing is, that's awesome. But how much did it cost you to make the 1.5? And then you learned it cost 1.75. They lost $250,000. And I don't really care how much your revenue is. So in the distillery business, I think that's important because sometimes, and sometimes companies or whatever that is do projects that don't make financial sense. But we as entrepreneurs need to go and dig in and ask those questions because then we go out, we follow this model Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the financials don't make any sense. Yeah. And we're following a dream that's just not, it just doesn't, the economics don't work. You can't glass cost sure. X, right? To pay Ben to come up and be a master distiller of this magical recipe that he works on for 90 days, cost of, sure. I mean, so. But and, there, yeah. and, and there is a, there's a scale thing there, right? And it's, right. and it's, everybody's got their own. Everybody figures out what what numbers work for them, and it's not that there's any particular desire return. That's you know you should always strive for this, right? It's, it's whatever works for you. Hey, it's 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 your game. You play it the way you want, but ultimately you got to make a little bit of money. Most entrepreneurs want to. I mean, <laughs> or, at least, or at least you want you know yeah, unless you want to turn it into a five hundred one c, in which case that's that's a whole different ballgame. But which is. The business of nonprofit is not to be underestimated. <laughs> However, <laughs> uh, I think that's, I mean, you know, a lot of people have wineries that lose money so they can write off their farm. And, and I think we just absolutely, I think that's great. I think that's For an sure. absolutely really smart thing to do. But what's not smart is as an entrepreneur thinking that you're going to follow that model and that you're going to make a living doing it and just understanding, I guess, is what I'm really saying is sure. context. But the truth is, is that if you can get your one distiller, you can work at night, you can put this thing together, you can become an authentic brand for whatever reason and make a good product, right. the, 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 the spirits business, I guess, call it, can be yeah. really lucrative, right? For sure. And again, I think we get back to, and the way I started was one, it was, what does it cost to keep the lights on? But really the most important thing was making the absolute best possible thing that I could and being totally authentic and transparent about that. And it's, it's like, look, make it however you want, make, do whatever you want. But, but you also, I think you really do need to put that quality and authenticity first. And that was the thing that, that set us apart. And it's, you can play the volume game. You can, you know, slap a label on a bottle of, of, of junk, but People will realize that, and and for entrepreneurs out there, and this gets into pricing too. So I'll, I'll I'll make it more efficiently and and price it lower than everybody else. The race to the bottom in terms of pricing is also a really fast way to fail, because all of the big guys can do it more cheaply and more efficiently than you can, and you should strive to build your brand in a different way. Do not get in a race to the bottom. Be the guy. 
least I believe, who is about doing the better thing. Because you can't make everybody happy. Can't give everybody the cheapest thing. Give them the best thing and give them your brand of that. And, and, oh, and I that, think it's figuring out what your niche is, right? Like who's that, who's that wine company? I read a, uh, in business school, I read a case study on it. It's been quite a few years since I went to business school, but on it's a kangaroo uh, wine. They only make two types of wine, red wine and, and oh, interesting. white oh. wine. And they priced it low. They priced it at 13 or $14 a bottle, but they, they, right. they, they said, this is going to be our segment. And basically, okay. based on that segment, we can only make this quality product. But the person that buys that quality product understands that it, that it's that it's a 14 or 10 or whatever it is, dollar right. on wine, right? Well, out, of, out in California, you've got famous winemaker, Tuck Beckstoffer, who has the 75 Wine Company. And he's, of course, a famous wine consultant. He goes around to all the big places, helps them put their stuff together. But then... He also has access to all kinds of great resources, namely the fruit and the juice that the big shops like Opus and whoever else didn't need or aren't doing anything with. And then he has his own brand of wine that is everything Tuck Beckstoffer, I mean, incredible, incredible stuff for 14 to 25 bucks a bottle. And it's literally the same, the same ingredients in that bottle that cost you 17 bucks. As in the three hundred dollar bottle of Pride or Opus or whatever it might be, and that's also another interesting exercise where it's you know it's a high quality product. There's an interesting opportunity there, and and, and he's doing it that way, but it's cool. So, and I, and I think in some ways he's he's breaking the rules of the industry, which are well, you're famous and you could charge. I mean, he and he is who he is, so he could charge three hundred bucks a bottle. And people would buy it. And wine is also an industry that is literally built on bullshit. And, <laughs> and, it, and, and that is a business where it's extra scary to break the rules and, and to sort of say, no, look, it's all the same stuff. If you know what's in, if you, if you have some idea what's in the secret sauce and you break all the marketing rules, you break all the branding rules, you just say, well, I was slapped 75 on a label and it's, and it's literally world-class wine for $17. Well, that sort of sets the industry on its head too. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, th I think with any of these wine or rum or watches or cars, oh, yeah. some, some of it's just, Hey, I've got this brand, right? I don't know any wine, cause right. I, but I, I'm able to buy this $400 bottle of wine. It's like women's purses, right? I mean, I, at least, For sure. and I'm probably getting in trouble with my wife and some other women potentially listening, but I really have not functionally understood the difference between the $3,000 purse and the $50 one. There, I'm open to the fact that there could be something really magical in there that's fundamentally different, but really it's about the brand sure. signaling that, that you could do that. So Absolutely. I think that, that if you can build that, that's important. So Ben, with all this, what is next? For Ben Lyons. Now you're a master distiller, is that right? That's I I so I will tell you I don't I, know what that term, is. that's the term that's the term that's popular in our industry. Okay. I I would describe myself as a head distiller or what I I mean there are there are titles that you can go and, and earn and so on and so forth, but I've I feel like I've won enough awards and 
done enough in the business to call myself an expert of some sort. Yeah. Okay. So. And I, and I do think master distiller is sort of a kind of a patriarchal term that I don't particularly love, but okay. Yeah. I mean, head I, distiller or whatever it is, you know, it's uh, you're you like a spirits certain, expert. Yeah. In a sense, it's not like you so, are, you're a spirits yeah. expert. So you understand spirits from, expert the, and, from the bottom to the top. Right. Including and, consuming and, and sailing. Right. <laughs> and and doing both of those things at the same time. <laughs> Which we do not recommend to any viewers. No, not at all. And I think there's a reason why <laughs> USA Sailing adheres to the world anti-doping regs, which classify alcohol as a performance enhancer. <laughs> so, so what do you what, your performance kids don't do it with alcohol? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe we need to But as for what's next. Yeah, 2020 yeah, so I, and and, and yeah, so I've always wanted to do an exclusive whiskey distillery. So just a distillery that's just whiskey. And that plan is pretty far along at this point. And I've got the sort of the basic framework left in place and figured out the equipment piece. And the last little bit is kind of where it's going to be. And then, of course, whiskey being a very expensive thing to produce, literally raising the capital for that. So that's so. So, so you'll do it a little different. I, I don't know anything about whiskey. Yeah, it's and it's and and I think whiskey. You know, I've done it one batch at a time. You know, making three gallons of rye whiskey in a you know in an eight hour period and whatever. And it's and it's and it's good. And I learned a lot, but now I'm you know it's time to take that knowledge and and expand on it. And, and whiskey is expensive because of the ingredients, or because you have to let it age, or the ingredients all- are expensive, and then of course you have. The aging process, which is expensive. So for American whiskey, every time you make a new batch, you have to, it has to go into brand new charred oak barrels. So you've got the expense of all those barrels. And then, of course, time value, which is you make the product. You've got this literal liquid asset that you just keep sitting around for a year. Well, it doesn't require any particular time frame, but... You're probably looking at at least a year and a half to three years, depending. Mm. And the, and it's not that those numbers can't work. And you take that into account when you're when you're making the model. And beyond that, I have see, I, I'm just incredibly excited by what I see going on in the CBD space. Well, I think the, I think there's a whole opportunity. I think there's a CBD. The opportunity is wide open and. I think for, for, for everything. So I, I think there's an opportunity there, but maybe it makes the most sense to tune in with you maybe after the first quarter of sure. 2020 and hear how this story has evolved here where Lions Distilling goes and, and then yeah. here where maybe your next venture happens Absolutely. and taking everything that you've learned and putting that into a, a new product, whiskey. I, you know, I feel like sure. I should be trying your your stuff, but it just has this like I never can get up on time when I. When I do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a I'm not a person who does anything in moderation. So right, you know, if you're like, hey Brandon, let's go drink some beer. I'm like, yeah, let's go drink some beer. Like, let's drink a few cases of beer. I know myself well enough to know that if I started in the whiskey, that might not be good. Moderation is for monks, right? <laughs> exactly, <man. laughs> Exactly what I'm saying. So, listen, I uh, want to thank you. This has been awesome. It, it's great just to catch up with you. Yeah, great talking with you. Get and to I, and I hope some of this was helpful for all the people out there. So, 
Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, the idea is you're going to make mistakes. Just try not to make the same ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't make the same ones. Right. <laughs> and if make you do, new don't... mistakes, make new mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. I'm going to write that down. You can make new mistakes, but you got to, you know, in all fairness, you can't beat yourself up. You don't know what you don't know when you, when you're exactly. starting out, you know, I think one of the things I tell people is make sure that you get a mentor to be honest with you, getting, I got lucky. I actually got a guy, I mean, you know, my, my background a little bit from the fishing site that I ran. And one of the guys turns out to be a guy who sold his company to Warren, takes it public, sells it to Warren Buffett and I get to go fishing with him. Right. And what did that save me? Yeah, that's that's saved me. I can't tell you, but uh, (laughs) so the advice is don't, I like this. I think we're, we're getting some high percentage tips here, which is don't make the same mistake, make new mistakes and find right. yourself a mentor. And Because uh, you will and it's okay. And that's that's part of this process. Yeah, you will live. All right, Ben. Well, thank you so much. Have a great hey. holiday. Look forward to talking <laughs> to you in 2020. Absolutely. Thanks, Brandon. If you got the sense that Ben was tiptoeing around some things and being careful with his words, you're right. That is definitely true. And we're going to tune in with Ben here in a month or two and see what's transpired since we did this interview and how it's going. Ben is one of these friends, which I'm sure you have at least one of these, who always is smiling. I swear he's smiling when things aren't even going good. And it's just a joy to be around. So I know things are going to turn out for Ben, whatever rough patches happen. So Ben, thanks for coming on, sharing your story. Looking forward, brother, to seeing how it all turns out for you. And hey, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a review and drop me some stars. I am very grateful for you being generous with a few minutes of your time that it takes to do that. It helps the podcast out, helps me out. So thanks for doing that. And with that, that's all we got for today. So thanks for tuning in. Until the next time, I'm rooting for your success. And remember, you are just one business plan away. We'll see you in the next episode.